Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Today is Wednesday, August 3rd, 2022. And of course, the time is flying by. We've got tons of news to go over today. I think one of the more interesting pieces of news today, though, has to do with Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. And I'm writing about this today. It'll be up by the time that you see this podcast. But I think that there are some really interesting nuances going on here in the public commentary as to whether or not cinema is going to come on board their um, the mansion schumer reconciliation agreement and cinema herself this morning says she's taking her time she's not going to commit she's waiting for the parliamentarian to do the birdbath on the reconciliation bill all of that is true we've known that for a while what is interesting, though, is what The Hill reported late yesterday as to what's going on between Manchin and Cinema. They mentioned that Manchin finally got a chance to meet with her face-to-face on the Senate floor. They've been exchanging texts, been exchanging documents. This is the part that I found very interesting. Manchin was tight-lipped about the details of the conversation, The Hill says, but made clear that he's willing to consider changes she might want to make to the deal. Now, this is already in front of the parliamentarian. The deal is already in front of the parliamentarian. So how do you make changes to the deal? You'd have to go back you'd have to go back and put it in front of the parliamentarian with any changes. Plus you'd have to get Schumer to sign on to it. You'd have to really open negotiations up all over again. Now that suggests to me that Cinema has a substantial disagreement with this package and I think we know what it is. It's the carried interest tax change that creates a uh, that that creates a uh, a lot of revenue by changing the interest rate on carried interest, uh, changing the tax rate on carried interest from capital gains to normal income. Uh, it's a, a much higher rate when you do that. And so I think that this is part of the, a, a large part of the $730 billion that gets raised in this um, package. So if you take that out, you got to replace it with some other sort of revenue. Otherwise, it doesn't go into balance and it, it's not a reconciliation bill anymore. So if Manchin's still talking about negotiating the terms of the deal. This thing looks like it might be actually going off the rails. And I've been skeptical about this. I didn't think Cinema would torpedo this, but it sounds like she's seriously uh, at least opposing some of this deal. So that's something to keep in mind. Doesn't mean in the end that she won't go along with it. There's going to be a lot of pressure on her to do that. You know, and it's going to be a, a big issue in the midterms in terms of her party's track record as to whether or not they pass this type of stuff. And cinema obviously is very interested in the climate change uh, portions of this deal. But man, I'm telling you, this has been over a week now and Cinema's not on board and Manchin's talking about renegotiating. That's, that's, not a, that's not a good sign for Manchin, for Schumer or Joe Biden. And so that's one, that's one big piece of news I think that may be a little buried under some of the other stuff that is doing. Otherwise, you know, we're talking a little bit about what happened uh, in yesterday's primaries. I've got another piece that's going to go up this afternoon about what it, what the um, uh, referendum vote in Kansas means for the midterms. Uh, Dick Durbin thinks it means that there's going to be a big, massive pro-choice turnout in the elections. Philip Bump at the Washington Post is skeptical, as am I. Uh, this was a one-off uh, ballot choice in regards to a specific policy. We'll get into more of that later on today. Joe Biden, by the way, is going to be issuing an executive order on um, on uh, abortion access, interstate abortion access. Uh, he's going to ask Medicaid to fund some of those um, uh, expenses for women who are crossing interstate lines to get abortions. That is going to run afoul of the Hyde Amendment, something I point out, and that'll be up later on today. 
Uh, all the pundits got a look at the Arizona results as well. And he's also got uh, something coming up on uh, Peter Meyer's defeat in Michigan and their Aiken strategy there. I keep an eye out for that. And I have, just on a personal basis, I've got my own obituary up for the late, great Vin Scully. Uh, and I hope you read it. I, you know, I, I didn't write it to get a ton of page views. I, I wrote it to just sort of put this out there. But, you know, I, I was blessed with good role models. You know, I, I had a good father, I had good uncles. You know, I, I, I mean, I was not, there was no shortage of role models for me, but Vin Scully was one of them. And Vin Scully was, he, he wasn't a preacher, he wasn't a lecturer. It was just the way he did his job and the gentle way in which he approached it, the honest way he approached it, the inclusive way he approached it, and always with this very gentle personal touch. Um, I'm going to miss him. And, uh, and I think a lot of people are going to miss him who grew up listening to him, who understood what fair play and sportsmanship and graciousness was on the basis of listening to him and watching him do his job day in, day out uh, for an organization he loved and an organization he was tremendously loyal to. And um, you we're just not going to see his like again for lots of different reasons, not because those values don't exist, in part because of technology. I mean, we just simply don't consume sports in the same way that we used to when Vin Scully was um, broadcasting for 67 years. 67 years as a broadcaster. Longest stretch uh, of, a, of, of a team uh, broadcaster in history. Um, I think we're just really going to miss a very, very good man in Vin Scully. So I hope you get a chance to read that. Uh, and I hope that if you've if you had those experiences with Vin Scully, that hopefully it at least speaks to the experiences that you had as well. And I would also recommend, by the way, going over to redstate.com to my colleague Jennifer Van Lars' uh, own personal remembrances of Vin Scully. She actually goes on a, a little bit longer length than I do. Uh, it's a really beautiful remembrance of Vin Scully too. So if you get a chance, uh, do that as well. In the meantime, the, today's episode is going to feature uh, two people that we've talked to in the past, Brant Hathaway and Leslie Manukian. They're challenging, they, they successfully challenged the CDC's mask mandate on transit. Uh, the CDC and the DOJ are appealing that decision, and uh, Brant Hathaway filed their uh, response to the appeal uh, on Monday. And we arranged to speak with him and Leslie Manukian, uh, uh, she's the lead plaintiff in this from the Health Freedom and Defense Fund. And uh, we spoke, I think, actually speak for like close to 40 minutes about what's going on, what's at stake. And it's important to know that this is going to go beyond the mask mandate. This is really targeting the heart of agency law. So stay tuned. It's a great conversation. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Joining us on the Ed Morrissey Show podcast today are two of uh, two of our guests who have been here before, and they've also been in, in front of court before. They're going to have to do it all over again because the CDC and the Department of Justice just can't take no for an answer. Joining us today, Brant Hadaway from the Davidier Law Firm, formerly Strange Women Lying in Ponds, a great blog from back in the day, and Leslie Manukian from the um, Health Freedom Defense Fund. She's the president and founder of Health Freedom Defense Fund, the plaintiff in this case, healthfreedomdefense.org, talking about mask mandates and 
Brant and Leslie, why are we here? Why isn't, I mean, this is not a popular, this is not a popular uh, measure. It's not an effective measure. The pandemic, even the, whatever excuse there was for this has pretty much gone by. And yet they're, they're, they're appealing the, the, the win that you got in, in the district court. I, I guess we'll start with Brant. What? I, I did they want to make you a a wealthy man? Is is that what the deal is here? <laughs> yeah, one can only hope. Uh, <laughs> you know, one of the things I said back, I think when we spoke immediately after Judge Mizell's ruling, was that there was the the part of her order on the statutory authorization was undoubtedly giving CDC and the administration a great deal of heartburn, because even if they they don't want to. Imp- reimpose the mask order, they, they want to have the power to do something like this in the future, right? And, and and so this is really, really a fight about the authority of the administrative state. It, it's kind of one of the, just another battle in that bigger fight that's going on over, uh, you know, the, the, the current uh, constitution of the court and their retreat from Chevron deference, which, you know, for the audience is a, is a case this decision of the Supreme Court from the 1980s that said, uh, well, if, if, if there's a statute that, you know, one could interpret either way, uh, courts will defer to an agency's reasonable interpretation because that is what the agencies are charged with doing by Congress. And so it, it really respects the separation of powers uh, to give the agencies uh, the leeway to 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 interpret that of, of course that it presumed uh that the successive administrations would enforce the law in good faith uh and and what we've had since is that we've had increasingly radical interpretations of law where where successive administrations are picking and choosing uh, uh like looking for obscure provisions in a statute and then saying it authorizes them to do to take some sort of executive action that is completely unprecedented. And we've seen this numerous times. And, and in his recent concurrence in the Supreme Court case of West Virginia versus EPA, Justice Gorsuch actually referred to this as, quote, pen and phone legislation by the executive branch. And that is really what this is all about. It's about pen and phone legislation. And it's about the increasing inability to even agree on what words mean, uh, which should be a foundational sort of uh prerequisite for form for formulating public policy but you know if we can't even agree on the meaning of words then uh how can uh agencies be entrusted with that sort of discretion right now leslie uh you're you're the plaintiff you're the lead plaintiff on this uh president and founder of health freedom and defense fund healthfreedomdefensefund.org again that's where you can find uh leslie and all the fine work that they're doing over there this really is the fight you want, right? Because what you want to do is you want to take on the administrative state and push back against um, uh, the federal government and its intrusion in healthcare matters and and just simply, um, uh, you know, everyday life. And so this is really the fight that you're that you're looking to uh, to have. I think it's really important for people to understand that, you know, as long as you're going along with the flow, as long as you're doing what a doctor tells you or the CDC tells you, then there's no reason to push back, right? They don't understand a lot of people, even why this isn't so important. But if you've had a reaction to a drug or you've had a reaction to a injection, a vaccination, if you have chosen to use holistic medicine or something that is 
outside of the scope of conventional medicine as your primary healthcare, then these things really matter to you because you see what happens when institutions and government are weaponized in support of private industry. So what we see happening all over the country is that the Federation of State Licensing Boards, which are the the is the group that actually licenses doctors in individual states, are dictating to doctors what they can and can't say. That's a problem, right? This is all about government overreach in all of its guises. And so Health Freedom Defense Fund and I personally am very, very committed to fighting back against intrusions into my private decisions about how I keep myself well, how I keep my family well. And the mask mandate that was issued by CDC, let's be really clear, a year after right. the whole thing started, it wasn't like CDC was claiming that they needed to issue this mask mandate right early on in the crisis. It wasn't until Joe Biden took office that the CDC issued this, this order. And my point is that people may not care they may not realize the importance of this, but those who try and choose a path that might be slightly different from the mainstream, those people really care. And now millions of Americans are waking up and realizing that everybody should care because if the CDC can force you to don a medical device or a, literally it's a garment when it's just a cloth piece of cloth, right? then CDC has way, way too much power. And so yes, Health Freedom Defense Fund is hell-bent on protecting our enumerated rights and those that aren't enumerated in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Because, you know, let's remember, it's supposed to be a restraint on government, not on us. And, and coming back to you again on this, Leslie, because I, I, I mean, I, it, it would be one thing if these were actually effective policies, right? It still would be intrusive. It still would be worthy of challenging because put simply the Cong Congress did not grant the CDC this kind of authority. We're going to talk a little bit with Brandt about that in just a moment uh, because it's, it was the basis of your win at, at district court in Florida. It's going to be the basis of, of the appeal plus a, a, a new argument that I'm just itching to discuss with Brandt here in just a second. But even if these were effective policies, this isn't the way to go about it, but these aren't even effective policies. You mentioned cloth masks, most people are wearing disposable surgical masks, which are not effective at what it is that they're supposed to be trying to do. Uh, for the but most Ed, part, he, yeah. Can I just say, even Ed, N95s are not effective either, but go ahead, ask your question. I'll well, I, I was, and I, you're right. I was just about to say, they're the most uh, they're the most effective mitigation masks that you can wear, but most people don't wear them properly. They don't keep them on their face because they're uncomfortable as hell. And, and so they don't actually do the job either. And so some of this is certainly constitutional issues and, and uh, you know, major questions, doctrine and all that. But a lot of this is also the fact that the reason why we have those um, those safeguards against um, overreach in in government is because oftentimes it, it just imposed bad policies or, or, you know, nonsense policies. And the CDC mask mandate happens to be one of those. You know, Ed, when Brandt was first speaking and he was talking about all the problems and the way that we can't agree on language anymore, one of the things I think is so important to remember is that government only works when people are well-intentioned who are in government. Yeah. And a lot, of, and our laws also assume that these federal agencies have good intentions. 
And I'm not so sure that we could all count on that. I think that is highly suspect at this point. When CDC completely ignores its own meta-analysis of, I think it was 14 studies that it produced, it, it, it published in May of 2020, which showed that these masks don't do anything for the flu. Um, you have to seriously question their intentions when they're now all coming out and revising history over the last couple of years, saying that, you know, Deborah Burks has come out saying that she never, ever thought that the vaccines would prevent transmission or infection. When Fauci is now backtracking, saying that he never supported lockdowns. I mean, this is a real crisis, right? I mean, I believe that what we're experiencing is a true constitutional crisis and that we are not in a place where we have people who are necessarily worthy of our trust. And the thing is, when there are people who are not worthy of our trust um, guarding the hen house, you're going to have major problems. And I think that's what we, what we face. So yes, these masks, these masks are absurd. Um, and they're putting on people, being put on people, forced on people who are not even known to be sick. Right. Who are not known to be a problem or a danger or a threat to anybody. And so, I mean, I think it's so multifaceted. It is, it's so much more complex than just do masks work or not? And do, does the CDC have constitutional authority? It's this huge, you know, mosaic of issues, which really come down to who owns our bodies, who gets to decide. And, you know, even if CDC says something, should I trust them? I think most Americans don't trust them at this point. Yeah, Leslie, I think that's, 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 a, that's a great point. Now, I want to take it back to Brant here because one of the things that you mentioned is it dovetails exactly into what Brant was talking about, which is the Chevron Doctrine, which was based on the idea, Brant, that agencies were working in good faith on uh, these types of interpretations of the statutes and, and how they could uh, write regulations around them. Um, the Chevron Doctrine assumes good faith. And I think one of the reasons why it's breaking down now is because it's been pretty clear. Well, I would say it assumes good faith and it assumes expertise. And I think mm -hmm. the reason why Chevron is under attack and is likely to to get tossed at some point entirely is that nobody can prove the expertise, but there's a lot of evidence about bad faith in these, uh, in these attempts based on the fact that the manipulation of language like you're talking about. Yeah, it, it's an unfortunate legacy of Chevron, which we, we actually mentioned in a footnote to our brief, is that it has tacitly encouraged successive administrations to engage in more and more radical departures from statutory meaning and statutory purpose. And it's really veering us in the direction of becoming a banana republic, where, where whereas Chevron was at least part of the intent was to encourage regulatory stability and predictability. Uh, we, we now have a situation where uh, investors, uh, you know, in, in important sensitive industries like the energy industry, they have to consider things that investors used to think about when investing in third world countries, which is regime uncertainty, uh, regulatory instability, uh, this sort of arbitrary and capricious nature of changing regimes and having a new regime come in and say the law is something completely different from what the previous regime said it was. And that is uh, becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And it's it's not just, you know, you know, uh, the, uh, uh, the Department of Education 
uh, sending out letters saying that you know defining uh, redefining the the meaning of woman under title nine it it comes down to very fundamental things that affect our lives and affect our economy and uh that is what i think really dooms chevron uh is is that aspect of of what we're seeing yeah i'm not necessarily sure i'm a big fan of deference to agency authority anyway you know i'm not sure how chevron came about but However it came about, I, I think uh, the sooner it ends, the better. And uh, the sooner that we hew to the actual written word and the commonly understood definitions of those written words, the better off we're going to be because that in itself will just introduce a lot more stability and it will force Congress to do more of its job, right? Which is to say, well, right. look, I mean, if you've, got, if you've got gaps in the statutes, well, then Congress has to fix those gaps. It shouldn't be up to agencies to just, just simply make assumptions that work around those gaps. It's up to Congress to do their jobs, right, Bram? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a big part of it. And Gorsuch has said that other judges, uh, I, I believe Kavanaugh has mentioned that factor as well, that uh, we've really taken the onus off of Congress and there's a reason why Congress, the powers of Congress are in Article One of the Constitution, because the framers regarded that as the most important uh, power in, in of the federal government was, was to be in Congress. But we've increasingly placed so much emphasis on the executive and, and pe so many people freak out about who's going to be the next president. And my response to that is, well, if you're freaking out about who has the next president, it might be because we've given the executive too much power uh over the years yep. and we need to return that to congress because the whole framework of the constitution was designed to encourage broad consensus that we wouldn't have these sort of lurching changes like you know you're, you're like you feel when you're on a, a a train on a bad railroad track you know when you're being jerked from side to side it, it was this sort of but this sort of ability to reach a broad consensus is taken away when we have so much deference to agency interpretations that 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 things can turn on a dime like we've seen in recent years with this you know as gorsuch put it uh pen and phone legislation from the executive right which was and, a uh, go ahead leslie I, I just wanted to chime in on this because i think there are two major issues at play here that are really important to unpack one of them is that that there's this notion, right? It's the nanny state. It's that government is this great authority, that government should be telling us what to do and we should defer to government. And I mean, I have to confess, I mean, there was a time in my life when I thought that the only thing that was wrong in the world is that I didn't pay enough taxes and that if government just had more money, everything would be okay. <laughs> I really did. Yeah, we. I so, think a lot of us went through that phase too. So, <laughs> so um, I, I've had firsthand experience listening to CEOs of multinational corporations talk about how they're going to literally kill people with their new drug, but they'll still do billions and billions in sales because, you know, it's only a few people who will die. This is, uh, there's an incredibly cavalier attitude amongst many of these CEOs, but my biggest point is that government has taken this place where too many average citizens think that government is above the law and government is the authority to which they should defer, defer. And I think that's part and parcel of another thing, which is the, the second point that I wanted to make. And that is the cult of the expert, right? right? So we have been conditioned to defer to doctors and scientists. Why do you think they wear white lab coats? 
It's because it, it conveys authority, right? It conveys position and power. Why are they called doctors when no other professionals get to be called that, called some title? It's because it, it cultivates this superiority that they hold a higher place and that they are above reproach. And I think it is high time that Americans woke up and started challenging all of these notions. The cult of the expert is one of the biggest problems, and it's what is it's um, in you know at play with respect to these agencies dictating to us. It's what's at play with the federal government dictating to us, which the president having too much power. And the truth is that all of these entities can be bought. They can all be captured, and they can be used against us. So if I want to use vitamin C or a homeopathic product instead of a jab for my health, I should be able to. That should be my choice. That should be my right. And nobody in government, nobody who's unaccountable, nobody who is not me should be able to make those choices. And so I think that's what we're really suffering from is this kind of deference to government and also this cult of the expert, which has been carefully crafted over many, many decades. Think oh, about yeah. that. Um, do, you, do you guys remember the uh, cigarette ads? My brand is Camel, right? right? In the white lab coat, the doctors were saying my brand is Camel. I mean, it was all about cultivating this this sense of authority amongst them. And I think it's really yeah. destructive. This, well, and Leslie, this goes back to Woodrow Wilson. You know, this I mean, and, and, and Brant, you can feel free to chime in on this. We'll, we'll, we'll take a very short dive into the philosophical here and into um, some con law history here. But the agency state is not the natural state of, of being in the United States, or at least it's not the historical natural state of being in the United States. It really started in uh, during the Wilson administration, where Wilson sort of conceived this idea that government of experts beats government of elected representatives. And this was a uh, this was an explicit uh, part of Wilson's progressivism. Uh, Wilson was one of the progressives of the early 20th century. And, um, and the idea that uh, experts knew better and should really dictate to Americans how they live their lives. And this is, uh, this starts with Wilson, kind of takes a little bit of a break in the 1920s. And after the, after the Depression and the New Deal, it just accelerates through all sorts of different things. And that's when you have this explosion of agency law, um, which is really Congress surrendering a lot of its legislative authority to the executive branch. And uh, certainly they still have some oversight over it. But that's that's how we end up in this position, and and that's what Leslie's talking about. Brandt is is mm -hmm. that leads us to this point where you get to a CDC that thinks it can dictate human behavior just on the basis of they're the experts and we're not. Yes, indeed, and you know the the funny conundrum that's sort of at the heart of the administrative state, and you bring up Wilson, the underlying philosophy, you know, from the Wilson era was that this sort of ex, uh, government of expertise was going to give us greater continuity and greater stability in how we lived our lives. And what Wilson failed to anticipate was that agencies, you know, you would create this monstrous sort of bureaucratic state that would end up being highly partisan or at least subject to the partisan whims of whatever administration was in power. And so it, it, it ended up giving, ironically or not, uh, it ended up giving the executive branch uh, 
enormous amounts of power that that you know would have been inconceivable prior to Wilson. Maybe that was his point. Uh, maybe it wasn't. Uh, but that's where we are in that whatever they was being sold to the public back at the time about having greater continuity and stability in terms of regulation, uh, you know, and, and, and being less subject to the partisan swings of, of, of government has, it, we've ended up with the complete opposite. We've ended up, you know, like I said earlier, we ended up becoming, becoming something more like a banana republic uh, in, in the way that agencies are weaponized. Uh, uh, especially by the left. I mean, we yep. saw it during the Obama administration weaponizing a, uh, the IRS and other agencies against anybody who got out of line. And we're seeing, you know, the EPA weaponize against, uh, uh, for example, SpaceX. And we're seeing, uh, you know, other agencies weaponized against people who are sort of threats. It's almost a Soviet outlook that anybody who becomes too much of a threat as an independent power center like an Elon Musk or somebody has to be hammered down and the uh, and, and the weaponization of agencies against uh, people has become a huge problem uh, and uh, it's become like the golem you know the, the, the you know or Frankenstein's monster in a sense yep. Yep. you know not least of these I mean I don't know if you're aware of this Ed but this is um truly staggering what's happened it's it's been revealed in recent months that the cdc gave gave <laughs> paid the media a billion dollars in the last couple of years to only convey the main the official narrative to the american people okay yep. but not but they didn't they went much further than that though they didn't only give media the money to the media they also actually colluded with big tech. This has now been released in documents that were released last week through FOIA, that they were actually colluding, making lists of people to take off, to take off of social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. They were um, colluding with big tech and violating Americans' First Amendment rights. Yep. You know, this is this is truly staggering. I mean, I know there was a case against Facebook a couple of years ago and the judge said, oh, you know, like, don't worry about it. Uh, or the judge actually at the time said, oh, come on, the government is not colluding with big tech. The, the government, there's no evidence that the government was collaborating with Facebook. There's no evidence of that. Well, now these documents have been FOIAed because the White House was actually saying that they were meeting to get meeting with it with big tech and that they were collaborating on what the messaging should be, what was appropriate message, messaging, what was misinformation. Now there's actually evidence of this, and we are going to be filing a First Amendment case in the not too distant future, HFDF, against um, CDC and another, and one of the big tech because there is absolute black and white evidence now that they have been colluding, and they haven't just been colluding; they've been meeting, they've been paying them, and colluding. Now this is government gone, literally awry, right? It's run yeah. amok. When our government is colluding with private industry in order to dictate what an American say, can say or can't say, we are literally at the end of the rope. I mean, we have we truly are a banana republic, um, to borrow Brant's characterization of the situation. All right, Brant. I think at this point in time, we've got to get back to this brief. and, and Because I, I promised the audience a really fun argument that is brand new to your, in, your, in your brief. Now, this is an appellate brief. And Leslie and I were talking about this before we turned the uh, 
recording on and this is it's a fun it's a fun argument appellate briefs really do primarily recap what happened at the at the district court level and recap the case i'm sure that the cdc's brief here in this case is going to do something similar and of course they also try to expand on it and, and make the case stronger and and you actually have a a, a pretty good um, hypothetical in here based on the idea that the CDC can somehow regulate human activity as part of its sanitation clause. Um, I'm not even going to read this. I'm just going to let you describe it because it's your brief, man. And you, you get, you get the glory here. <laughs> A big part of the fight here is over the interpretation of section 361A of the public health service act of 1944 and if anybody wants to look it up it's encoded at 42 united states code section 264a you can go and look it up there and it has two sentences and the first sentence basically says the surgeon general which is a duty that's been conferred to the cdc over the years has the authority to uh, institute you know regulations reasonably designed to prevent the interstate or or spread of, of disease, you know, this the spread of disease from foreign countries into the states or the spread of disease from state to state. And it, there's a second sentence that says in doing those, he, you know, he, the, the Surgeon General may do things like order uh, inspection, fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, and so on. Now, going back to, you remember under the Trump administration, there was the eviction moratorium that right. CDC instituted this rule uh, and CDC had never done anything to rule over our daily lives or, or reach so deeply into the national fabric or, or the economy. CDC was generally an agency that was known for providing advice and assistance to the states and local governments in, in public health. And it, it, where it governed people's lives at all, it was to enforce quarantine at ports of entry to the United States. But even that function has really gone very much in the background. We don't have, they long ago ceased having things like mass quarantine, like, you know, we arrive at Ellis Island and you're sent for inspection. And, and you like know, the scene from The Godfather, too, where they put, yeah, them, put it, them in exactly, for three months. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. They long ago ceased doing that. But, but remember, this statute was written in 1944. And so you have to think about, you know, most people coming into the country, they're coming in by ship and so forth. And so what do these words mean? And the district judge uh, looked at the words and said, well, well you know, CDC urged that sanitation should have a broad meeting like, of things pertaining to public health. And the district judge said, well, you've you got to look at the statutory context. And one of the things she did was you look at these other words, inspection, fumigation, uh, you know, disinfection. These are active measures that you would do to a thing or an object, not, not to a person. And so this, these, you know, sanitation must mean some sort of active cleaning measure that you would apply to a, a property or a thing, not, not to a person. And in, in, in their argument on appeals, CDC, again, goes back to that argument that, that you can choose, pick and choose from a number, any number of dictionary definitions. And there was an amicus brief was filed on behalf of on behalf of CDC by a group of public health law experts. They're all leftists. And they, you know, provided this laundry list of possible definitions of sanitation. And all of them are very broad and amorphous. So, you know, just, and, and, and it's the same thing. You know, if, if that's the definition, 
then CDC could take almost any public health measure just based on the word sanitation, saying well, it was a sanitation measure. And in one paragraph, I suggest that perhaps as a sanitation measure, CDC could require condoms, or perhaps it should just order a moratorium on all intimate human contact contact until it gets the monkeypox outbreak under control. Uh, by CDC's reasoning, you know, by by this sort of notion that you can define sanitation in a manner that's completely untethered from its statutory context, that's the sort of thing you get. Now, you know, maybe somebody would say, well, that's that's an absurd sort of hypothetical, but part of the part of the point of arguments on appeal are to educate the judges on, you know, what absurd lanes uh, the reasoning of the other side could take you to. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's absolutely nothing uh, to stop uh, CDC from from reach from going on that sort of rationale uh, at all based on based on what it's uh, arguing vis-a-vis -vis the meaning of the word sanitation. Well, right. I mean, is it a reductio ad absurdum? Yeah, but it's not necessarily all that reductio <laughs> because because in Leslie, Leslie's already already chiming in here in agreement. The mask mandate itself is sort of a, a, a reductio ad absurdum in and of itself. And it's actually in place, Leslie. So, I mean, this is this is the reason why the statute doesn't anticipate having bureaucrats dictate to people their own personal behavior. I mean, this is that's a line that shouldn't have gotten crossed in the first place. A hundred percent. Well, first of all, it's really important to bear in mind that CDC never argued that masks were a sanitation device in the very beginning. When they implemented the mask order, they never said that. It was only after the fact, after we filed our lawsuit and we got the ruling and then they wanted to, um, then I forget at what, which juncture, Brant, you can remind me. But yeah, it was it was when the Supreme Court came down with its decision in Alabama Association okay. of Realtors, that was yes. an eviction moratorium case. The Supreme Court said that the the first the scope of the first sentence is informed by the words in the second sentence, and I forgot to mention that. And it was it was only after that ruling came down, which was shortly after we filed our lawsuit, the CDC came in and seized on that word sanitation as a as a post hoc rationale for the for the order. Yep. Yeah, so they're just trying to you know cover their butts, right? After they've already um, done something which seems pretty egregious. So that's one thing that I think <laughs> bears um, bears remembering. But the other thing is, you know, Mike Bloomberg, when he was mayor of New York City, he tried to, by executive order, dictate that New Yorkers couldn't drink big gulps. I remember right? that very well. <laughs> Thirty-two ounce. I don't know how much is in a big gulp. I've never had a big gulp. I don't. I think it's a forty-four. I think it's a forty-four okay. ounce soft drink it's or something. Some like absurd <laughs> amount of high fructose corn syrup, right? I mean, right. Well, you know, no, when I was a teenager, it was great. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not a teenager anymore, so I wouldn't even try something like that. But yeah, no. yeah, exactly. Nobody in their right mind would want to drink that unless they were maybe a teenager. But the point is that he tried to do this, and it was struck down as you know a violation of his power and authority. The court said, you know, sorry, no go, Mike. And I think it's a great illustration of this overstep of government and. If you take CDC's interpretation of sanitation, what's to stop them from dictating what we can and can't eat? 
How much, how much ice cream can you have? Can you eat a candy bar? Can you? And the reason I'm arguing that is because we know scientifically that sugar undermines the immune system. So are they going to dictate that? Yeah. You know, how far are they going to go? Are they going to tell us how much exercise we have to get every single day or every single week? Where is it going to end? And does it, does it, is it somehow connected to what your genetic composition might be? Like, are you more inclined to get diabetes or to have heart disease? And, you know, the government gets it wrong all the time. I mean, for decades, we were told that fat is bad for us, saturated fat. And now they're admitting that actually butter is good for you, right? Saturated fat from healthy pastured animals, whole milk, raw milk in particular, is good for you. And so, you know, the point is that it's so easy for them to get out over their skis, right? To get way, way out in front of where they should be. And this is about politics. It's not about science. It's not about public health. It is clearly about political power and that's it. And I think it's it's incumbent upon every person to actually consider these sort of absurd um, examples because you never know where they're gonna go with any of these things. And that's how you really see what the true sort of, you know, if you take it to its end conclusion, where that might end up. And I think we don't want to forget about that. Well, right. and Brent, I mean, so you filed the brief. Um, so that's um, the funds over. Now you got to do the waiting until you get in front of the appellate court. Do, do we know when the appellate court is going to take this up or? Uh, they will have to see whether they schedule oral argument. I expect that they will. They don't have to. Uh, there's going to be a number of amicus briefs filed on our side, uh, in, including, I would anticipate, one from a number of states, including the state of Florida. Uh, those should drop on Monday. Uh, there have already been a couple of amicus briefs filed uh, as of today. But, um, you know, we'll see if and when the 11th Circuit schedules oral argument, and then we'll take it from there and uh and, and see what happens but i i kind of i get the feeling that the administration would prefer that there not even be a ruling before the midterms because really when you think about it either way this goes is going to be bad political news for them uh it, before the midterms because if, if they win a reversal then then the news cycle is oh my gosh they're going to put you back in mass if they lose then it's well what did you do that for and so uh i think one of the reasons they've been kind of not in a hurry <laughs> to uh, get a ruling here is 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 that i you know honestly and i i'll make this the last question both of you can answer mm -hmm. it but i think it's a little bit more towards brent i don't even understand the strategy here because if you lose mm -hmm. in the district court you've just lost in one court mm -hmm. and you can just wait until you actually think that you need to do something before you challenge it or or just issue a different order and let it be challenged again right mm -hmm. This is going to set a precedent, at least in the 11th Circuit, <laughs> that that isn't set yet. That I mean, right. and, and if it gets pushed to the Supreme Court, it's going to settle this question once and for all and likely on the terms of uh, the um, Alabama um, Association of Realtors case when it comes to right. the eviction. I mean, I, I, oh, it's probably going to be nine nothing if it gets that far. I don't even understand what the hell the strategy is here. They'd be better off politically and legally just walking away from this one and wait for the next thing to pop up you know i i thought that the smart play politically would have been to end the mass mandate before judge mizell had a chance to rule right and then i would have been arguing with doj about 
mootness and capability of repetition uh, type arguments. And, uh, you know, and that could have gone either way, but, you know, by leaving it hanging out there and giving the, uh, a, a court a chance to rule on this when they knew their, they had to know that their arguments were kind of shaky, um, struck me as politically not so intelligent. But I, I think I mentioned to you the first time we talked about this was that I, I learned from somebody inside DOJ that nobody outside DOJ actually knew about this case before it blew up. And so it, it caught the administration completely flat-footed and then you had this finger pointing and then you had this kind of thing, well, who's gonna make the decision? And it was all, it was all a big mess. And, but, you know, it, it's just par for the course with this administration. It, it's just, I've seen nothing like it in my lifetime. Yeah. I think it's, can, we, can we say though, maybe that it's just par for the course for government? I mean, isn't yeah. that really what the issue is? Because here's what's so interesting. You know, we file, we win, we win on April 18th. You would think that if there were an emergency, <laughs> they would fight back right away. They would try and overturn the ruling immediately. They'd try and expedite the process. They did none of that. Yeah, they didn't seek a stay, <laughs> which it, it became obvious within the first couple of days that they weren't terribly serious about fighting this and, and, and trying to snap back the policy. And I think they knew because it was political poison. Uh, I mean, everybody saw the viral videos uh, online of, of people celebrating. And uh, that was, uh, you know, how do you walk that back? I mean, it, to me, it was like the same sort of preference cascade that we almost like what we saw in 1989, you know, <laughs> with the wall coming down. Just right. People were, people were so happy. Uh, what are you going to, you going to bring back unhappiness now? And, exactly. Uh, so uh, this is about I, the preservation I, of the nanny state. That's all right. this is about. It's a yeah, preservation exactly. in any state. They see this as a, um, they see this as an existential threat to the edifice of the nanny state. And that's what Leslie Mnookin's been arguing all along. That's what Brent Hathaway is also arguing in court. And that's what you have to be paying attention to folks. This is a case that you're going to want to stay on top of. And thankfully Brent and Leslie have been so generous with their time and keeping mm -hmm. us informed here at hot air. And I know that we're going to talk more as this case continues to progress and uh, Leslie Manukian is at um, Health Freedom Defense Fund, Health Freedom Defense Fund. That's healthfreedomdefense.org. And I think, Leslie, you're on Twitter, right? We have a social media presence. You can find all of our social media by going to our homepage, healthfreedomdefense.org. Yeah. Yeah, that's a smart way to well, do it. Well, we're on social media, but we are seriously suppressed. I'll tell you that. Whenever someone tries to join our Facebook page or our Instagram page, they get a warning saying that um you know this this channel has been flagged and that it shares um questionable content and things like this which is just bogus i mean we right. share science we share the law but it just it's a good example of how bad things are for those of us trying to you know portray a different perspective and it's just another piece of evidence for your next court case leslie manukian you can find out more about that at healthfreedomdefense.org so stay tuned on that and of course brant hadaway friend of mine from way back in the blogosphere doing <laughs> some fine work in court you can find him at davilierlawgroup.com that's d-a-v-i-l-l-i-e-r lawgroup.com and uh that's where he's uh doing a lot of his work he doesn't do strange women lying in ponds darn it anymore but uh i'm going to try to talk him into it at one point here when he's when he's done with all these, when he's done winning all these fights, because he's going to win them all, 
Uh, we'll, we'll get him back. We'll get him back in the blogosphere. Brant Hadaway, Leslie Manukian, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having us, Ed. Yeah, thanks, Ed. Always good to see you. Always good to see both of you. Stay tuned for more from the Ed Morrissey Show coming up next. This is Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com for Town Hall. Will she or won't she? After Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer finally cut a deal on reconciliation, all eyes have turned to Senator Kirsten Sinema, who had also resisted the earlier and massive tax and spend Build Back Better proposals. Senator Manchin pushed hard for Sinema to back the new agreement on several Sunday talk shows, claiming that it didn't raise taxes and would address their shared concerns on inflation and deficits. None of that turns out to be true. A Penn-Wharton budget model analysis shows that the bill will actually increase inflation slightly into 2024. Deficit reduction won't happen until 2027, and then only if future Congresses don't change its trajectory. The bill raises $327 billion in new taxes that hits manufacturers and other producers particularly hard. It also disincentivizes investments that could increase output and innovation, a stunning approach in a supply shock inflationary environment. Cinema should stick to her principles and reject this bill, and her constituents need to make sure she knows it. I'm Ed Morrissey. Thank you for watching and listening to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Be sure to subscribe at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube to get alerted as soon as new episodes get published. You can support the Ed Morrissey Show and Hot Air's VIP reporting by becoming a VIP member, too. Visit hotairvip.com and use the promo code SAVEAMERICA, all one word, for 40% off your membership. Choose VIP Gold and gain membership to access to all of the town hall sites. Thanks again for watching and listening.